On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel, Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 11 through 22 again this morning. So if you'll follow along now as I read, beginning in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Charles Spurgeon said this, give yourself to the church You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone, and then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I have already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for your not joining it if you are the Lord's nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. 
The church is the nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. End quote. I love that line. Still, imperfect as it is, the church, he said, is the dearest place on earth to us. Is the church the dearest place on earth to you? For a great number of professing Christians, it's not. They're not committed to a local church, and this is probably for an unlimited amount of reasons, but just let me give you a few. First of all, some are very self-centered. They live only for themselves. And church is a nice thing to attend on Sunday if you don't have anything else to do and if you weren't out too late the night before. And so they attend church on a semi-regular basis, if that. But outside of that, they have no real commitment to or investment in the church. Others are just simply independent. And they don't want to commit themselves or get too involved because they have other secular activities and commitments they would never think of giving up, and they just don't have time for the church. Others are very critical of the church. They have a consumer mindset. They're looking for the best product for the price, so they're fickle and they're, they're, fickle and they're always looking for a better deal. For others, it's bitterness, perhaps because they've been disappointed and, and hurt in a previous church. But as one man said, let's face it, if you've been involved in a local church for very long, you have been hurt or frustrated or disillusioned. But I would venture to say that if you've been married for very long, you have been hurt or frustrated or disillusioned. But I hope you're still married. Commitment is what keeps you going in your marriage to work at make it better, to work at making it better. In the same way, you need to commit yourself to the church and work at making it better. As imperfect as it is, the local church should be the dearest place on earth to us. Why? Let me give you a few reasons. First of all, the church is the bride of Christ. Christ loved the church as his bride and gave himself for her. I mean, he loved the church enough to die for us while we were helpless and sinful and ungodly and enemies. He purchased the church with his own blood. He died for the church to redeem a people to be his very own. I mean, that's sacrificial love. Secondly, Christ's love for his church is so deep and his identification with us so real that he views us as his own body, which he nourishes and cherishes. Number three, the church is the only eternal institution Jesus established. Neither family nor marriage are eternal. It is the church, God's family, that is eternal. Number four, the local church is the primary vehicle that God uses in proclaiming his gospel and making disciples of all nations. Number five, the local church is where Christians learn to live as a people called out of the world to be together, to love one another, and to serve one another. Number six, the local church is central to Christian living. It is vital for our spiritual health. It's where we're strengthened, built up, equipped, and encouraged in our faith and spurred on to love and good works. Number seven, the local church is the context for our own spiritual growth and sanctification. I mean, certainly individual believers have some personal responsibility for their own practical sanctification, but it cannot be accomplished in isolation from the local church. The local church is God's context for change. 
Number eight, the local church is the primary place for the Christian to express and to use the gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given to him for the glory of God. And number nine, finally, the local church should be the dearest place on earth to us because it is an unspeakable privilege to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ. The fellowship of the saints is an absolute gift from God. Paul doesn't use the word church in our text, but quite obviously, that is exactly what he's talking about. And he doesn't specifically exhort us to be committed to the church, although that is the only conclusion that you can draw if you understand his words. But what Paul does do in this passage is to elevate our understanding of what the church is so that we'll be motivated to love the church as Christ does so that it will be to us the dearest place on earth. Now we need to remember the flow of of chapter 2. In this chapter, Paul has been dealing with the subject of reconciliation. The first ten verses, he dealt with the reconciliation which God has brought between himself and fallen man as individuals, whether Jew or Gentile, through Christ. And in verses 11 to 22, he begins to deal, or he deals with the reconciliation which God has accomplished between Jews and Gentiles corporately through the work of Christ. In verses 11 to 13, Paul, as you remember, urged Gentile believers to first remember their past situation. They were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But, Paul said in verse 13, now you who once were far off, that is, you who were far away from the true God, have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. In other words, through the work of Christ, all the causes of enmity between man and God were removed, they were reconciled to God, given peace with God, and brought near by a miracle of grace. And then in verses 14 to 18, Paul focused on what Christ has done through his reconciling work on the cross. Jesus not only brought them near, he also abolished the hostility between Jew and Gentile, so making peace. And and Paul went on to say that from the two, Jew and Gentile, from the two groups, he created one new man, a new entity, a, a new humanity, also called one body in verse 16, which believing Jews and believing Gentiles are made one. And so in Christ, a new corporate entity exists, which of course is the church, the body of Christ. And then in verse 18, he reminded them that through Christ, both Jewish and Gentile believers have access in one spirit to the Father. And now as we come to the third and final section, verses 19 to 22, Paul focuses on what we have become as a result of what Christ has done. Jewish and Gentile believers are joined together as one and belong to a new corporate entity, the church, the body of Christ. And Paul illustrates this new corporate entity, the church, using three word pictures, citizens, family, and a temple. First of all, in verse 19, is citizens, citizens in God's kingdom. And Paul begins by saying, so then. And the first two words, so then, tell us that what Paul is about to draw out, or he's about to draw out the implications of this radical truth that in Christ, Jew and Gentile are now one new man. So then, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. So Paul, again, reminds the Gentiles of what they once were. They were strangers and and aliens. He doesn't want us to forget where we would be if God had not graciously brought us near. 
And the two words, strangers and and aliens, are, are somewhat synonymous. But if there is a distinction, strangers refers to a person from another country, a foreigner, while aliens refers to the foreigner who lives in the land as a resident alien. And both words convey exclusion. In other words, the fact that you're an outsider. Even though you may be living in the country legally, you don't possess the same rights and privileges as legal citizens. So you're treated differently. You don't, you don't really belong. And as Gentiles, that was our status before the cross. We were strangers who had no rights or privileges among the people of God. But Christ's work has changed all of that. Through the grace of God and the gospel, Paul says, if you look back at verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. The the, the new status that Gentiles enjoy, that we enjoy, is that of fellow citizens with the saints. You say, well, fellow citizens of what? Well, Paul is alluding to citizenship in God's kingdom. And basically, the kingdom of God is where God rules. And since God rules over all life and over all worldly kingdoms, there's there's a sense in which the whole world is God's kingdom, because his kingdom prevails. But here, here in our passage, the kingdom is speaking about the realm where God rules and reigns. It's where God rules and reigns in individuals, individual hearts and minds. And so it's a kingdom found wherever people call upon the name of the Lord and trust Him alone for salvation. And all believers in Christ become fellow citizens of God's kingdom. And what is the visible representation of this kingdom in the world? What would that be? The church. The church of Jesus Christ. And from Abraham until the time of Christ, the the Jews were God's chosen nation. He revealed himself to them in a way that that he didn't do with any other people on earth. He made exclusive covenants and promises with them. But now God has created a new man, the church, made made up of Jews and Gentiles. And the church is presently God's kingdom people on this earth. And so everyone who comes to the Father through the Son in the Spirit is a member or a citizen of this kingdom which cannot be shaken and will endure forever. And it's an international, interracial, multicultural kingdom with no racial or cultural distinctions. The Gentile believers now belong to this glorious kingdom. They were no longer strangers, foreigners. They weren't second-class citizens in in someone else's homeland. Now they're they're full members of the kingdom of God with equal standing before God in Christ Jesus. And of course, Paul was writing during a time in which Roman citizenship was highly prized. I mean, Roman, Roman citizens had amazing privileges for that day. And citizenship in, in any great country uh, is a blessing. But there is absolutely nothing like being a citizen of the kingdom of God. But now, Paul says, you are fellow citizens with the saints. You know, your spiritual new birth in Christ has made you a natural citizen of God's kingdom. You, you now live under His rule and reign, which means that we all have certain privileges and responsibilities as a member of this spiritual kingdom. 
And we enjoy the, the benefits that he provides, such as uh, his mer- gracious and merciful provision and protection, just to name a couple. But it also means that we must obey his sovereign rule and, and, and live in a manner worthy of our calling, live in such a way that, that our lives adorn the gospel. And as members of his kingdom, we're, we're, we're to be distinct from those who are citizens of the kingdom of darkness. And our, our heavenly sovereign demands our total allegiance, our total commitment. I mean, we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him, live for him. And so Paul continues to emphasize to his readers that The Jews and the Gentiles who were formerly alienated from one another are now fellow citizens in Christ's kingdom. And now in the last part of verse 19, we see the imagery shifts from citizens of God's kingdom to the intimacy of a family and and a home. Paul wants his readers to know it's, it's not simply that Jews and Gentiles are fellow citizens under God's rule. Oh no, it's much more than that. They're now children together, brothers and sisters in God's family. And this is just a beautiful analogy of the church. Look back at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and he says, you are members of the household of God. Members of the household of God. You know, as wonderful as our citizenship is, being family, Members of God's household is much more personal. It is far more intimate. It's a relationship, a a unity, a, a closeness that is intimate and intense, which can only be experienced within the bonds of a family. As one man said, here we have gone from the legal relationship to a spiritual relationship. Just as blood unites a family, God's Spirit unites all believers as fellow members of His household. And so in Christ, Gentiles are not only fellow citizens with Jewish believers under God's rule, they are also children together in God's own family. And to think of Jews and Gentiles as as one family is stunning. And there's only one way to become a member of this family. To become a member of this family, you must be born into it or adopted into it. And of course, the Bible uses both of those terms to describe what it means to be a Christian. But primarily, the Scriptures speak of being born again, which is why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. Peter wrote about it in his first letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, saying, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. Belonging to the household of God, this, this family relationship is only possible for those who are born again in Christ Jesus. You know, we hear uh, people talk about God being the, fa- you know, the fatherhood of God and God being uh, the father of all. Well, that's not true. God is the creator of all. But God is only father to those who have been born again in Jesus Christ, born into his family. When people come to faith in Christ, they're, they're born into God's family and they immediately become connected with every other person born into the household of God as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And that God would make us members of His own family? His own household? I mean, that speaks volumes about His amazing love. Because He he could have simply forgiven our sins, declared us justified, given us eternal life, which is far more than we deserve and could have ever imagined. He could have only done that. But God didn't stop there. Now, He also brought us into His own family and made us sons and daughters. And this is what God does in His grace and love. By the new birth, we have all become children in God's family, members of His household, the, the household of faith. And of course, everyone in the family gets to have a key to the front door, don't they? You don't, you don't have to ask for permission to enter a home when you live there. You have access to those people at any time. And in the same way as the children of God, as the children of God, we, we can all come into the presence of our Father. Because He's made Himself accessible to us and promised us that we never need fear being turned away. I mean, His care and concern for His children is constant, ongoing, and, and unending. In fact, He cares so much that He tells us, rather, He commands us to bring all of our, our cares, all of our troubles, all of our problems to Him. You know, this family is also the place where you can be yourself and, and know that you're loved and accepted. At least that's the way it's supposed to be in the family. But on the other hand, the purpose of this family is not to bolster all the members' self-esteem and self-fulfillment in an atmosphere of narcissism. And the purpose is not to make its members happy, to, to keep everyone in a state of perpetual bliss. Rather, it is to make them holy and useful, glorifying God and enjoying Him. The family of God made visible in the world, in the local church, is where we find identity and security, receive nurture and nourishment, get encouragement and support, benefit from teaching and training, modeling and mentoring, discipline and discipleship. And the local church is our spiritual home, and, and those who gather week by week spiritually speaking, are our true brothers and sisters. And this means our brothers and sisters in Christ have a special claim on us. They deserve our primary support, certainly not to the neglect of our, our blood relations, but not as, as a leftover or an afterthought either. Why? Because our spiritual family is our primary family. It's the household of God. And as Paul pointed out in Galatians 6.10, Christians have a special responsibility to those who are of the household of faith. One commentator wrote, here's the bottom line. We'll only prioritize a local church, and we're convinced the local church is the one-of-a-kind institution. It truly is. Remember, Jesus is the head of no other institution and claims no other institution as his body. No other institution serves as the dwelling place for God or the resident of the Holy Spirit. There is no other institution that has so remarkable or far-reaching history tracing its roots back before the foundations of the world. Nor is there any other institution with the church's future extending as it does into eternity. Nor is there any other institution as global in scope or diverse in membership. We won't find any other institution that's easier to enter, yet so impossible to forsake once we've truly joined. 
And let's not forget the spiritual benefits of belonging to this unique institution, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The church is a -a one-of-a-kind institution. And it ought to have first place in our affections and, and all the other concerns and commitments in our lives. I mean, after all, the church is our family. It's, it's the household of God, the, the household of faith, the very dwelling place of God. You see, loved ones, the church is not a building we go to or an event that we attend. No, the church is family living life together as we make our way to our eternal home. And so be careful not to treat the church as a hotel, a place you visit occasionally, giving a tip, you know, if you're served well. Rather, see the church as part of your Christian identity and understand that we all have a role in God's household. And God calls us to be what He has made us in Christ. And what is that? His children who all have responsibilities in the family. And as such, we're to each fulfill our role to serve faithfully and to love one another as brothers and sisters who share in His love, bringing glory to our Father. And now as we come to verses 20 to 22, Paul changes the imagery again. Now he changes it to the world of architecture. Not only are believers fellow citizens of God's kingdom, members of God's household, we are also a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And the first thing Paul tells us about is this temple's foundation. I mean, there's nothing more important to any building than a solid, stable foundation. I mean, Jesus' parable of the two men, one who built his house on the sand and and the other who built his house on the rock at at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, stresses the importance of building upon the rock. In other words, that which is solid, stable, and immovable. Well, upon what rock then is this temple built? Well, notice verse 20. Paul says it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Although Paul on occasion used the term apostle in a non-technical sense uh, to mean simply a messenger or a messenger of the church, the vast majority of references in his letters are to apostles in a technical sense, referring only to those men who were specially called, commissioned, and sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this would include the twelve minus Judas plus Matthias, and Paul himself. Now there's some question as to whether prophets refers to uh, the Old Testament prophets. Uh, However, it's best to see uh, these prophets as uh, New Testament prophets. Why? Well, because first of all, the word order. Apostles first, prophets second, which suggests that Paul means New Testament apostles and prophets. We see this also in chapter 3 where Paul says, Uh, speaks of uh, that which was made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then in Ephesians 4.11, Paul, speaking of the resurrected, ascended Christ, said this, and he gave the apostles, and he's talking about giving to the church, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, or the pastor-teachers. 
Now this happened post-resurrection and ascension, which definitely forbids us to interpret these prophets as Old Testament prophets. And so it seems clear that this refers to New Testament prophets in the early church. And so Paul says this this temple, which is a living temple, is, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Well, what do the apostles and prophets do in building or laying the church's foundation? Well, in part, they laid the foundation by founding the first churches in accordance with God's will. But most significantly, the apostles received divine revelation through the Spirit, and then their task was to teach it and to proclaim the gospel to Jews, and in the case of Paul, especially to the Gentiles. And this they did both verbally and in their writings as they wrote down for us the completed revelation of God's Word in the New Testament. Before the canon of the New Testament was completed, the prophets, the New Testament prophets also received direct revelation from God, and their unique function was to authoritatively proclaim the word to the church. And Paul's point here is simply that the church was founded on the divine revelation received and proclaimed by the apostles and prophets, the same revelation we now possess in the New Testament, the testimony about Jesus Christ. And so what this means for us today is that the Word of God and the entire Bible must be the basis for all that we do. I mean, just as a foundation bears the weight of a building and and sets the pattern for its growth, so the Word of God, uh, the, the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, is the foundation for the true church. And in any building project, the foundation is laid only once. You don't build by laying a foundation over and over. I mean, if you do, you need to fire your contractor, right? (laughs) But in any building project, the foundation is laid only once. You don't keep building by laying a foundation over and over again. You build one foundation, and then you build up from it. And Paul applies this principle to the apostles and prophets who once for all Their once-for-all work laid the foundation for Christians and the church, and we are now building upon that foundation. And so if we are to build safely, strongly, and faithfully, then we must take God's Word, all of it, as our only infallible rule for faith and practice, because the church stands or falls based upon its faithfulness to God's Word. And if we tamper with the foundation, you know, if we tamper with the Word of God, the church's foundation, then the building will absolutely crumble. And that is why Paul commanded Timothy to preach the Word. And that is why in the book of Acts we read that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so we must do today if we're to build upon their foundation. Paul says this temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but it's not only the apostles and prophets who form the foundation, but actually Jesus himself. See, this temple is being built with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Look back at verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Paul refers to Jesus as the cornerstone of this temple. Now that may not seem significant to us today, 
because the, the cornerstone in, in contemporary buildings is often nothing more than, than a brick or a, or a block that, that is hollow and contains mementos that will be cemented in place at an opening ceremony to be opened at a later date. It, it's simply for cosmetic value, and it has absolutely no structural significance. I mean, none whatsoever. But the stone being described here is something much different. In ancient times, when they built these great stone structures, the first thing they did was to place the cornerstone. Because everything else rested and depended upon the cornerstone. This this large stone bore much of the weight of the building and it tied the walls firmly together. And so it had to be positioned perfectly. Because all of the, the lines of the building came off that cornerstone. I mean, it was the key stone for the entire structure. And you pull that stone out, and everything falls. Everything is, is out of whack. Now, some argue that Paul, in saying cornerstone, is really referring to the capstone, the, the, the stone that, that finishes off a building. But the temple Paul is speaking of here is still under construction. And so the context here clearly shows that Paul is talking about the foundation stone that was first laid at the corner. And he says this cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. Of course, Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 28, verse 16 of Christ, saying, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who was laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And then in Psalm 118, verse 22, uh, uh, it was predicted of Jesus that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so Paul is saying that the foundation of the prophets, the apostles and prophets, is is the base that rests ultimately upon the chief cornerstone, the, the keystone of the whole structure who is Christ. I mean, Christ is the cornerstone from which the foundation extends. So really, Christ, you could say, is the foundation. As the, well, as the well-known hymn puts it, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is the new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. You see, it's it's all about Christ. It's all built on Christ. Supported by Christ. And the lie or shape of the continuing building is determined by Christ, the cornerstone. Everything hinges and depends upon Him. He holds everything and everyone together. In other words, Christ is how the church grows and is held together. There is no unity or growth if Christ is not the cornerstone. I mean, again, it is all built on Christ and supported by Christ. And so this means, loved ones, that that any church that undermines the inspiration and authority of the Scripture in any way, and any church that diminishes the person or work of Jesus Christ is not a true church. They're not built on the true foundation, and so they must be rejected. Rejected. They don't have a solid foundation. So Paul says this temple is built on the foundation 
of the apostles and prophets, but Jesus Christ Himself is the chief cornerstone. It's important we understand that this new spiritual temple that Paul has been describing, which his readers are a part of, is not complete. And it's presently under construction. It is presently expanding, growing, and increasing in size. Notice verse 21. Paul says, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom, in in verse 21, and in Him, in verse 22, obviously refers to Christ. I mean, everything depends on being in union with Him. In Him, Paul says, the whole structure, this new temple is being joined together and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And just as this growth takes place in Him, according to the beginning of verse 21, so the temple exists in Him. You see, what joins Christians together is not their race or language or class or money or mutual interests and hobbies. At least those shouldn't be the things that join Christians together. Shouldn't be anything like that. What joins Christians together is Christ. It is in Christ that the whole structure is joined together. He's the mortar that, that cements us together. We're all one in Christ Jesus, and so there can be no church unity unless men and women are joined first to Christ. But when they are, then, like branches grow in a vine, so this temple grows in the Lord. We grow up and, and we grow together. And so in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is the way Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and the first part of verse 5. He said, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Peter says believers, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That's a reference to the church. I mean, the church is described in a number of ways in the Bible. Probably the most familiar is the body. And the church is the body of Christ. It's also called the people of God. I mean, all those metaphors, in all those metaphors, the church is made up of people. And the church is not a building, it's comprised of people. But Peter gives the metaphor of the church as a building, a house, but but this building isn't made of brick and mortar or wood or plaster, but of living stones, of people. Believers as living stones are being built, built up as a spiritual house. And here in our text, Paul says, we are being joined together. Being built up and joined together. The Greek word translated here as joined together means to be fitted together, to to be or become connected together to form a a coherent whole as stones for a building. And Paul uses another form of this word in 2 Corinthians 11.2 where he speaks of a man and woman being betrothed. Another form of this word conveys the idea of a close union. Another is used with the sense of fitting together, such as the use of sutures to bind a wound. 
Another form of this word is used by the author of Hebrews for joints in the human body which only the Word of God can separate from the marrow. And Paul may have chosen this word over the more common build to stress God's role of carefully fitting and, and joining each individual person into the building with, craft, with a craftsman's skill. And this word also conveys a, a more intense sense of, of closeness and union. And so Paul says we are being carefully fitted and, and joined together. I mean, that's an incredible image. I mean, just picture Jesus as, as the massive cornerstone with the foundational teaching of the apostles and prophets laid upon Him. And then one by one, believers as living stones are set upon it, forming a, a superstructure, an ever-growing temple. And as the Lord, by His mercy and grace, saves sinners, they are, added, they are added living stone by living stone to this ever-growing temple. And this adding to the church, this temple will continue until all of God's elect are gathered into its fellowship. But notice what Paul says about this temple. It's not merely a temple. Paul says it is a holy temple. In other words, this growth is not only in quantity, but also in quality. And Paul uh, clearly seems to be more concerned with the quality of the growth of the whole structure. As one commentator noted, the growth that most pleases and honors God is growth in holiness. His temple is holy, set apart from everything common to be His unique possession and dwelling place. Paul will develop this thought later in, in Ephesians 4, 15-16, but it is vital that we understand that growth in numbers is no substitute for growth in holiness. It is not a question of either or, but of both and. He continued, Sadly, evangelicals have often been guilty of focusing on numerical growth to the virtual exclusion of laboring to make the church a fit dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We have a responsibility to do all we can to make God's temple a pure and welcoming dwelling place for Him to inhabit in the Spirit. And so he said, now is the time for us to throw out all the garbage in our lives and, and fellowships that grieve the Spirit. Our, our pride, our resentment, our bitterness, our complaining spirit, our lukewarmness and complacency that our glorious God may have a fit and beautiful dwelling place among His saints. Good words. And so God is building a spiritual structure. He's building a holy temple of living stones. And so every time someone is born again, another stone is cut out of the quarry of sin and they become a living stone and they are cemented by grace into that ever-growing spiritual temple. And it may often look like or look to us that the church on earth is nothing but a pile of rubble and ruins. But Christ is building His church and God is overseeing the building of, of the total structure as it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And I greatly appreciate the observations that one commentator brings out of this image of Christians as living stones. Let me, let me share it with you. It's lengthy, but it's good. First, he said, the stones placed into this great structure are chosen and shaped for their position by God. 
It is His temple. He is the architect. It is not for us to determine where we will fit in or how. Second, the stones are placed in a position in relationship to Jesus Christ. They are attached to Him. If they are not, they are not part of this building. Third, the stones are of different shapes and sizes, perhaps even of different material, and they are employed for different functions. Some serve in one way, some another. Fourth, the stones are linked to one another. From, from where they're placed, they cannot always see this. They cannot always see the other stones, but they are part of one interlocking whole regardless. Fifth, the stones of the temple are chosen, shaped, and placed, not to draw attention to themselves, but rather to contribute to a great building in which God alone dwells. Number six, the placing of each stone is only part of a long work begun in the past that will continue until the end of the age when the Lord returns. And then he said, what a great process this is. And how mysterious. He continues, we're told in 1 Kings 6-7 that when the great temple of Solomon was constructed, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. To my knowledge, he said, no building in history was ever built in this way. Its construction was almost silent. So holy was the work. Silently, silently the stones were moved and added, and the building rose. And thus, he said, it is with the church. We do not hear what's going on inside human minds and hearts as God the Holy Spirit creates new life and adds those individuals to the temple he is building, but God is working. In the days of the apostles, God was adding Gentiles to a temple composed at that time largely of Jewish believers. He was adding people like Luke, Lydia, Phoebe, Philemon, Onesimus, and the believers at Ephesus and other Greek and Roman cities. Later, he added those we call the early church fathers, then the later church fathers, and those to whom they ministered. And at the time of the Reformation, he added Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and Cranmer and many others, and he is still adding to his temple today. And what is the purpose of this structure, this this living, growing holy temple in the Lord. What is its purpose? It is to be a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Look at verse 22. In Him, in Christ, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The term a dwelling carries the idea of of a permanent home. So what's Paul saying? Well, in the Old Testament, God's glory was in the temple, which uh, represented His presence with the people. But what Paul is telling us here is that in this, this age, this age of grace, this new dispensation, this, this new covenant era, what, what Paul is saying is that God's special presence is not limited now to a place or a building or an ethnicity. God now dwells in His new temple which is constructed not from inanimate materials, but out of living believers. The Holy Spirit indwells each individual believer who is thus a temple. But the temple uh, Paul is speaking of here in Ephesians verses 21 and 22 refers to the Holy Spirit's corporate dwelling. Paul is telling us that God by the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence in His earthly sanctuary, the church, the, the vast spiritual body of all the redeemed. And this is where God dwells. 
He's not tied to holy buildings, but to holy people, to his own new humanity. And to them, he has pledged himself by a solemn covenant. He, he lives in them individually and corporately. And this is the purpose of the temple Paul speaks of, to provide a place where God can live in fellowship with his people. And the church is that place. And so the status of Gentiles who now believe in Jesus as Messiah has been completely transformed. Those who were Christless, separated from Christ, homeless, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, friendless, strangers to the covenants of promise, hopeless, having no hope, and godless, without God in the world, are now citizens of God's kingdom, members of God's family, joined together as a holy temple, a dwelling place for the living God by the Spirit. That's quite a change. Quite a change. A change that can only be brought about by the grace and mercy of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so what, what does all of this mean for us today? Well, one obvious implication from these three pictures is that Christ wants to create a people, not merely isolated individuals who believe in Him. And this passage confronts our rugged Western you know, individualism. You know, to be separate from the church is to say, I want to be a refugee away from my country or a, a son or daughter separated from my family or a stone apart from a building. Doesn't make any sense. And many people today treat the church as something that is unnecessary, unimportant, even a hindrance, but that certainly is not God's design for the Christian. Some think the church is fine for others, but they don't feel they need to take being committed to it seriously. However, the New Testament says that it is uh, that is our fun- the church is our fundamental identity. The longing to a local church should be more important than where you go to school, where you work, or what club you belong to. If we're apart from community, from the fellowship of God's believers, we're not following the New Testament pattern, and we're certainly not helping ourselves any. It's not good to be apart from the spiritual oversight of pastors and elders or apart from the accountability and support of brothers and sisters in Christ. And the New Testament assumes every Christian is part of a local church. That's just assumed. The New Testament knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christianity or or the position that, that claims, I'm a member of a universal church, but I don't need to join a local visible church. But as one man said, union with Christ is union with Christ and His body, the church. You cannot be vitally united to Christ and not be vitally united with His body, the church. You know, we show that we're part of the universal church by identifying with the tangible body of believers locally. I mean, isn't that, uh, or isn't this what we do in our union with Christ? And we live out spiritual union with Christ visibly. In the same way, we should live out our union with other believers visibly. We should be identified uh, with and, and committed to a local church. 
As one man said, avoid being a ninja Christian, just slipping into a worship service and leaving without a trace. He said, be a family member instead. In the metaphors for the church, stones in a temple, members of a family, citizens of a kingdom, you know, members of a body, all of those assume individuals are part of an actual church. In the New Testament, emphasis on the importance of belonging to a local church is abundantly clear. I mean, we cannot read this passage honestly without seeing the importance of the church. And this is how God intends for us to live out our faith and and love for one another in community. I mean, that's that's a a word that is used so much today, I almost get tired of hearing it. It's, It's overused. But nobody wants real community. Because real community is, involves sacrifice and commitment to a community of people, a local church. But this is how God intends for us to live out our faith and love for one another in community. And it's an incredible gift of God's grace to have a family of faith. It's a gift of grace to gather corporately and to be able to stir one another up to love and good works. It is a gift of grace to love one another as Christ has loved us. It is a gift of grace to bear one another's burdens. It is a gift of grace to be taught and admonished by one another. It is a gift of grace to be allowed the privilege to give financially to further the gospel. It is a gift of grace to come to the Lord's table for communion. I mean, all of these privileges have come to us by Christ's finished work upon the cross. He has brought us near and made us one by the blood of the cross. I mean, this passage is a great reminder to us of the significance of the church of Jesus Christ. Because there's nothing else like it. There's nothing else like it. Nothing else more important and nothing else more worthy of our commitment, sacrifice, and contribution. We're not a social club. The church is not a social club. The church is not a self-help society. Rather, we are the new creation brought about by the Spirit of God through the death and resurrection of Christ. We are citizens of God's kingdom, members of His family, and a holy temple in which God dwells by His Spirit. I mean, do you see why it's so important that we should love the local church and be committed to the church? And finally, this passage not only confronts our Western individualism, but it also confronts the racist impulse in many believers. Man-made distinctions of a black church or a white church or a Korean church or a Hispanic church or for that matter, a cowboy church. Those are not acceptable to gospel-centered people. As one man said, we're to be a part of a red church. And he doesn't mean Republican. He said, we're to be part of a red church, that is, a people from every tribe and tongue that have been redeemed by the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shed His red blood, that we may be reconciled to God and to one another.
Amen. Amen. May God work these things in our hearts for Jesus' sake and for His glory. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel Reading, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love.